Let's start reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And this is Paul writing here. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and the love we inspired in you... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped over... In faith and earnestness and knowledge and all earnestness uh, and in the love we inspired in you, see that, you're, that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this passage of what it means to be followers of you and how that affects what we invest ourselves in, Lord, help us to see that you became rich or you became poor so that we could become rich. Lord, help us to understand that rightly. Help us to be generous people. Help us to hear from your word this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's the situation. In Jerusalem, these new believers, there were many new believers who were very poor. If you look at Acts chapter 4 through 6 and also, or Acts chapter 4 through 6 and also chapter 11, you see that several of the believers were in really poor situation. People were selling the stuff that they had to be able to take care of the other believers. So, and and also if you see in uh, Romans chapter 15, you see that the other churches were taking up an offering to help these poor believers in Jerusalem. Uh, in Romans 15, Paul says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, uh, Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister them also in material things. So we see through this passage that a year before what, what Paul's writing here in uh, Corinthians Titus had started to collect a gift or started to initiate this process of saying, hey, the believers in Jerusalem, there are some really poor folks there. We need to start raising some money for them. And the people were very excited to give. And remember, Titus had a really important role in Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth. He was the one that carried the letter of tears that we talked about a while back in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And Paul waited to hear back from Titus how that had gone. So uh, that Paul, or Titus was really important with this relationship. And then in the passage I read in uh, Romans, uh, Paul says, For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister them also in material things. So the Gentiles were able to share in the spiritual things of the Jews. And what I mean by that, Jesus was a Jew. 
And the first believers were Jews. And so they were then sharing with the Gentiles the spiritual things that basically Jesus. They were sharing Jesus with people who were not Jews. Uh, thankful for, I think, all of us, because uh, that's us. We're the Gentiles uh, here. Um, so if the Jews shared that spiritual thing with the Gentiles, then the Gentiles, it should make perfect sense that they would uh, support them with material things. Uh, there was a way of taking care of each other. So in verse 2 of uh, 2 Corinthians 8, we see that uh, God gave the Macedonians joy in their affliction and generosity in their poverty. And that word for poverty means someone who's basically having to beg to make it by. So this was... Uh, a really bad situation, or, or uh, people who were really poor helping out other people. And the uh, Macedonians were inspired to be generous by the Corinthians. They had heard that the Corinthians were starting to take up this gift for the believers in uh, Jerusalem, and so that inspired them to give as well. You know, in America, we, you know, we're a pretty charitable society. Um, the average American donates about 3 to 5% of their income to charity. <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit higher percentage for people who donate to religious organizations. Um, one of the things that's always interesting around this time of year and also during the elections is politicians will publish their tax returns to say, this is how much money I made because it's interesting to see where their money actually comes from. But then, two to show off what percentage of their income they actually give to charity. Um, and most, I, I remember during the last presidential election, most of the candidates were around the same average as most Americans. Uh, I remember Mitt Romney was, they thought he was a little unusual because he gave a little over 10%, and, you know, he's a pretty wealthy guy. Um, and then just, a, I think, a week or two ago, I heard that the president, they, they did the same thing. He turned in his, uh, he reported what his uh, financial returns were, how much money he made, and that he gave something around 15% to different charitable causes. So they, they kind of waved that around and said, hey, look at me, um, I gave money. Um, and what's interesting about the percentage is that the percentage of the amount of money that we donate decreases as our income increases. You would think it would be the other way around or at least be consistent. But what happens is up until you start making around $250,000 a year, which I think probably excludes most of us, uh, so, um, maybe one day some of us, but up until you get to that point, as your income goes up, the amount of the percentage of your income that you give goes down for Americans, um, which is interesting. The other part that's really interesting about that is that people who make less than $20,000 a year, you know, really kind of the bottom uh, as far as income goes, they donate about 4.6% of their income to charity. You know, and often people who are poor are the most generous. I, I found that when I was working with people who were homeless once you got them into some stable housing, some of them, the first thing they did was invite their other homeless friends into that place, which often didn't go very well. But you just see they're like, hey, I got something good. Here, come have some of it. So we see that with, uh, with a lot of people, that the people who are in the worst situation are often the most generous. So in verse 3, we see that the Macedonians saw that giving was a privilege. They were like, please let us participate this in this. And they gave according to and even beyond their ability to give. And I thought verse 5 was just really interesting that it says, they gave themselves, not just their money, they gave themselves to the Lord and to godly leadership. Um, and so in verse 8, Paul tells them that this provides the, the Corinthians an opportunity to show their sincerity. They, to mean that what they said, they actually meant. 
And then we come to this awesome verse in verse 9, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's like, well, what do you mean Jesus became poor? Well, over in Philippians chapter 2, Paul's uh, telling the Philippians to, he's given this idea that we should think of others before ourselves. And then he points to Jesus in this. So in uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's... That's a powerful passage. It's it's even thought that those words may have been a hymn in the early church that they would sing it. So you just see that Jesus emptied himself and he humbled himself. He was rich in heaven, son of God, and emptied himself to become one of us, to walk among us. This this idea that he was still fully God, don't get me wrong. Jesus was still fully God. But he put on hold a lot of those aspects of himself. He put on hold his omniscience, his ability to know everything. He put on hold his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. He put that on hold. He put his omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere at the same time and confined himself to one body at one time. All the power of God was still available to him, but he didn't use it. I don't even think we can fully understand that. We, we get anxious when our phone is not by our side. Um, but he put all of the ability of God to the side. It was there. He was still God, but he didn't use it. That's, what he, that's how he became poor for us, so that we could become rich. So how did we become rich? Well, obviously we're not all financially rich. But our richness came in another way. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, it's not this kind of prosperity gospel that people would want to teach that, you know, if you give God something, He'll bless you with a lot more. So if you give God $100, He'll give you $1,000 back. That is not the way God works. God's economy is different. We become rich through adoption into the family of God. We become His children. We have, and through that, we get access to God. We, get, we gain heaven through that. And it's all through His grace. And then until that time when we're in heaven, we also have the fruit of the Spirit. All the things that God works through us while we're here on earth. It's not just about heaven. It's about today as well. Let's continue reading through 2 Corinthians, starting at verse 10. Paul says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, 
so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. And it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who, put, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution, so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. He starts here that they're describing that there's a difference between the idea to do something and the desire to do something and actually doing it. There's a big difference there between having a good idea or having a lot of desire and actually pulling something off. You know, we as people are great at starting stuff. We're not so great at finishing stuff. Um, You know, it's just the way we are. We get real excited, we get started on something, and then it kind of our energy runs out toward the end. You know, Coach Rick has this saying that's on all the shirts, finish the drill. You know, just starting the drill is not enough. You've got to finish it because that's where the work is actually done. There's, a, there's an old Japanese proverb that's been quoted by several famous people. It says, vision without execution is just hallucination. Vision without execution is just hallucination. It's a daydream. didn't happen. And then starting in verse 12, he goes through and he talks about how they are to give according to their ability. And it's not so that their life would be really hard and other people's lives would be great, but it's to bring about equality, that your abundance, what you have in excess, can help those who are lacking. Now, we don't talk about politics a whole lot around here, especially on Sunday mornings, but this idea should drive how you think about other people. how you think about the poor. Because a lot of my friends who claim to be believers love demonizing people who are poor. And that's, how can, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're highly critical of people who are in tough situations, you know, you need to think through that a little bit. Now, there is a difference between giving and being taxed. Okay, big difference there. But, We have to be careful what our attitude is with all of those things. John Wesley, I think probably some of you know who he is, kind of the founder of Methodism. He earned the equivalent of about $10 million in book sales alone. But he died broke because he had given away 
everything he had to the poor, to causes and churches and things like that. And he said, when I die, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, he was British, so he talked in pounds. Uh, He says, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, you and all mankind may bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. Verse 16, he continues on about the importance of credibility and transparency when we're dealing with financial matters. You know, I, I worked in nonprofits. I know a lot of you have done that too. That's a big part of what we do is how we uh, handle that, those financial matters. At the university, it's even more because we have laws and regulations out like crazy to make sure that we manage money appropriately. The church has no shortage of financial scandals. If you look around the world, especially in our country, I mean, it's sometimes they come in waves where it's just one bad testimony after another of somebody embezzling money or using things in the wrong way. I'm not going to get into whether they're actually believers or not, because that's to the person who's not a believer, it doesn't matter. They're, they're saying they're Christians, so it, it affects us. We, and this problem goes all the way back to Jesus. You know, Judas was the disciple that took care of the money for them. And he got mad when they didn't do some of the stuff that, the way he wanted because he was used to kind of dipping in and taking a little extra for himself. And it happens all day. I went to a, um, an accounting training years ago for churches, and there were probably 30 or 40 churches there. And, you know, and he said, uh, the person who was doing the training said, yeah, and in a group about this size, not necessarily these people, but in a group of 30, 40, 50 churches, there's probably at least one case of somebody taking money. And they may think they're doing a good thing. They're just scraping some of the cash off the top so that they can, they're going to give it to somebody in need. Um, that's, that's how we justify these things. We, we watched a movie uh, a couple of weeks ago um, about these group of guys who figured out that it was easy to swindle Christians out of their money by setting up a fake charity. And, um, you know, they saw all this money coming in for a mission trip, and they asked the girl, well, do you have any accountability for how you're handling these funds? And she had this really confused look on your face. And he said, well, how am I going to know that this money is actually going to be used for what you say it is? He said, it's like, I've got a camera. You know, you know those pictures from mission trips? She thought that was enough accountability for how they were going to spend $20,000 on a mission trip we got to be better than that because it's not just about if we're right with God. It's right if it's important that we be right with other people, that there be no chance that somebody could attack our credibility. Verse 18, he, uh, he mentions this uh, brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. He doesn't name who that is, but just out of curiosity, if you're wondering, it's a good chance that it's probably Luke. could also be Apollos. Um, could be both of them for all we know, but there's other people who are involved in, in what, as well. Um, But the important thing is that they represented the other churches. They were the representatives who were accompanying him to provide that accountability and that testimony that the things they were saying they were going to do with the money is actually what they did. Uh, And I'm sure they helped out in a lot of other ways as well. And in verse 24, he ends this chapter. He didn't write it in chapters, but you know what I mean. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. In other words... Show the evidence. Show the proof, not just promises, because we can all say we're going to do something, but he's saying actually do it. Provide the proof to them, which is important as we go into chapter 9 here. 
Let's start reading chapter 9. We'll, we'll read through the whole thing. For it is superfluous for, us, for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many blessings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for their liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. When I, one of the first jobs I had when I moved to Georgia is I worked for the Atlanta Opera, which is... Uh, medium-sized nonprofit, you know, several million dollars each year. And one of the things that we did, or was part of my job, was to keep track of people who had made pledges. Because a lot of times people would say, I'm going to give $10,000 and maybe spread it out over several payments or something like that. And so I had a spreadsheet that listed out all these people and then when they made their pledge, usually in writing, um, and then when they would make payments on it so that we could tell how we kept up with it. Because that pledge was considered an asset on our books. So we had to make sure that we accounted for it well. And, and every once in a while, somebody would just, we just realized this person's never going to pay this. And so we'd have to write it off. We'd actually have to do an accounting entry to write off that that is a bad debt. And so you, I, I had that picture in mind when I'm thinking about this. The, these Corinthians had made a pledge that they were going to give this gift on behalf of the believers in Jerusalem. And so this region that I keep stumbling over when I pronounce this, Achaia, it's the region of Greece where Corinth is. And so what he's saying is that your testimony is that your pledge has encouraged a lot of other people to give as well. So if you fall through on it, it's going to affect all these other people who were inspired by that. Now he's not writing, he's not writing to motivate their giving because they've already been motivated to give. He's encouraging them to be ready. And he's not, you know, he's not a collection agency out there saying we're going to boot your car if you don't pay up or anything like that. But he's, and he's not out there hustling, trying to you know, push people. But he's saying fulfill your commitments for the sake of your testimony 
and for ours. Don't embarrass us. Don't embarrass yourself and certainly don't embarrass God by not keeping your word. And then he also says to avoid covetousness. And, and you, you see it to where he's like, well, Paul, you know, we said that last year, but, you know, some things have happened since then, and I'm not quite as excited as I was last year, and, I, you know, I'm not really sure. And so if you want to put it in our terms, you know, we had our advance a few months ago. Well, you know, that was back at the advance, and, you know, I was really excited then. It was real kumbaya. But now when we got back, it's a little bit harder to do those things I said I was going to do. Um, we have to avoid making promises we're not going to fulfill and not living up to the things that we said we would do. In verse, starting in verse 6 through here, he talks about how generosity is evidence of grace in our lives. Verse 6, you've probably heard this a lot. Um, he says, Now this I say, he who spares, who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's like a farmer. He doesn't expect to get produce from a place that he hasn't planted anything. An investor doesn't expect to get a dividend or a profit from a business he doesn't own. So this biblical principle is that if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. You're going to get back what you put out in the same way. In Acts 20, verse 35, Jesus is quoted as saying, It's more blessed to give than to receive. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, I have to admit, for a long time, I didn't understand this illustration. I I didn't understand pressed down, shaken. I was like, what are you even talking about? That doesn't make much sense to me. But he starts off by saying, I will pour into your lap. It's this idea that the clothing that they had would have some type of pouch or pocket that when they were carrying something like grain or flour or like dried beans or something like that, they would have a pocket, you know, it's kind of like a, a hoodie with the little hands up there. We, we were yesterday at the yard sale, uh, gave Marcus the money bag to take care of, and he put it in his little belly pocket, and I was like, hey, it's good use right there. Or, or it's like me when I was a kid, you know, and you want to take your Legos from one room to another, you take your shirt like this and do the little pocket, your Hot Wheels cars. So that's what I'm picturing in my head, that they, they have this pocket that they're pouring this, they're going to the market to buy grain or, or something like that, and that's, they're filling up this, this pouch here. And he says it'll be a good measure. Now, a bad measure would be something that's not true because it was common that people would use false measures to cheat people out of things. But he said it'll be a good measure, and even beyond that, it'll be pressed down. So they'll put stuff in the cup, and they'll press it down to make sure that you're getting as much as you can get into that cup. And it'll be shaken together. You know, like with flour, sometimes you have to shift it a little bit to get the air pockets out of it. So you're going to shake it down to make sure you get everything you're supposed to get. And then beyond that, it's going to be running over. So it's not going to take the measuring cup and then slice off the top. No, they're going to heap as much. It's like when you get ice cream and you ask for like one or two scoops and they're just getting as big a scoop as they can. You're like, yes. <laughs> you know, you want the biggest scoop you can possibly get when you're, when you're paying for it like that. That's what he's saying. That's how it's going to be given to you. He said, if you, if you give in that way, that's the way it will come back to you. As I said, God's economy is different than the world's. God's economy is a gift economy, not a transaction economy. 
See, when we're in a relationship with somebody, with, whether it's my wife or the, my family, we give gift to, gifts to each other because we love each other. That's part of our relationship. I, some people hate getting gifts because they think, all right, I have to figure out what the value of this gift is, and then in return I have to give a gift of the same value so that we're even. That's not the way it works with God, and it shouldn't be the way it works with us either. A gift economy is that I give because I love you without any expectation of anything in return. It's not a transaction economy. When I go to a store and I give them some money and they give me a product, that's a transaction. You know, that's all, you know, we can be nice to each other, but it's just a transaction. In a gift economy, you give without any expectation of getting anything to retur- in return. And that's the way it is with God. And we can't misinterpret this as a promise of wealth. You can't say, all right, like I said, if I give, then that means God's going to give me something. So maybe I can just manipulate God to where, you know, you know those like kind of battlefield prayers, Lord, if you just get me out of this, or exam day prayer, Lord, if you just get me out of this. Um, that's not how it works with God. You, you don't make a deal with God uh, in that way. This guy, R.G. Letourneau, he was a businessman. You ever, anybody ever been to the Baptist Center up in Tacoa? Um, you know, it's, it's an old building. Well, he, he built that building years ago. The, the walls of the rotunda are steel. I mean, if a bomb went off, I think that building would be the safest place to be. Uh, I've been there several times. He, he eventually sold it to the Georgia Baptist Convention, and now it's their big retreat center. Um, he, he was really successful in the earth-moving business. And he, he eventually got to this idea of living off of a reverse tithe. He lived off 10% of his income and then gave 90% of it away. And he had this to say. He says, the question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. Verse 7, another verse you probably heard a lot. It says, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver which I've had some friends who at the end of that say, but even grumps need to give. Um, So it's not an excuse that if you don't have a right attitude, you don't give. Giving isn't optional, but our attitude about it matters. Jesus said in in Luke 16, where he's given the parable of the unrighteous servant, uh, he says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? For not faithful will what we have, how do we expect God to give us more? You know, how do we go to God and say, God, give me, give me, give me, when we're not generous with our time and our energy and the resources that we have? You know, because it'll never be enough. If you're looking at money, it'll never be enough. You, you can search the Internet for stories of people who won the lottery and it ruined their life. Because they think if, I, I mean, my stepdad was one of those who said, well, you know, one day I'm on... We lived in Alabama where there is no lottery, so anytime he went to Georgia or Florida, he'd pick up a ticket or something like that. Um, you know, playing the lottery can ruin your life. Um, and winning the lottery can ruin your life, too. Um, just, you see a story every once in a while. The thing I see is, you know, I work at UGA. I'm in one of the academic buildings. And I'm used to seeing our current football team and basketball players all that walking through the building. But every once in a while, we have a former player comes back who maybe left college early go play in the NFL. Can't blame them. You know, hey, there's a lot of these guys, you know, that's a big deal. 
And they'll play for a few years, and then when they're not playing anymore, they'll come back and finish their degree, which I think is awesome. It's what they should do. But one of the guys uh, who's been taking some classes recently, um, I heard him talking to another one of my colleagues, and he said, you know, I'll look around at these players who are in college right now and playing right now. I said, they don't have any idea. He says, yeah, I played for a few years. I made good money, and it's gone. He says, i got to come back and get my degree so I can have a job. A, a guy we went to high school with, I don't know exactly how he managed his money, but he played for, I think, seven, eight years in the NFL, now has a thriving business. And I was like, you know, you got to be prepared for that. It's, there's never enough money if that's what you're trying to base it on. In Luke 24, uh, we see this scene where Jesus is near the temple. Luke 21. Uh, and he says, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. This guy, uh, Ed Owens, who's an investor in Chicago, said, Jesus commended the widow not for giving away so much, but for keeping so little. Our culture values the size of the gift, but God values the size of what we keep. So the question is like, well, how much am I supposed to give? You know, you notice I'm not talking about like what we give to the church and all that. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's this attitude of being generous in all things. So how much should we give? I thought C.S. Lewis has a, has a great response to this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. You hear that? There are things, there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. If our lives look the same as other people who make the same amount of money as us, then we'll probably have our priorities a little bit wrong. Verse 15. So he's been talking about being ready to give as you've promised to do. And then he just has this, I guess it can be called a gem, one of Paul's gems in, in one sentence. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I mean, he could have quit right there. You know, not written the rest of Second Corinthians, and we'd probably be—I uh, don't think anybody would have complained too much. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Well, how do you describe an indescribable gift? Um, in my view, He's talking about the grace of God here. In this, in the in the two chapters that we looked at today, He said "grace" or "gracious" something like seven times. You know, a lot of us associate grace with the hymn "Amazing Grace." It's probably best known hymn in our country uh, for the past however, however long. We sing it at funerals and any time we get together a lot of times. Um, but the grace of God is that Christ came for us. 
That as we talk about, he emptied himself. He humbled himself to be able to die for us. And then he was obedient to that. He became poor so that we could be rich. It's a gift. It's completely undeserved. There's no way we can earn it. So what is our response? What is our gift back to God? Uh, Since we can't repay that, you know, how do you repay that? The best thing we can do is to worship Him in thanksgiving, to be obedient to Him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But it also should be in our generosity, how we give to others, how we give to people in need. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift.